This is episode number 65, Dogged Determination, 85% Spinal Fusion, Can't Stop Heather Laptalo From Running. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of motivation, mindset, inspiring stories, and plant-based nutrition. We're here to help you live better every day. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so thankful that you are listening to this podcast. And thanks so much for those of you who have been leaving reviews. We really love reading those. And it's so awesome to be able to connect with each and every one of you. Today's story is absolutely incredible and one of true inspiration. And I'm actually really grateful I've had these surgeries, which is a weird thing to say, considering it was such a hard experience. But I don't think I'd be who I am if I didn't. Sometimes I think, well, I could probably be a faster runner if I had full lung capacity and I'd be even better if my spine moved. But the truth is I wouldn't be as strong and resilient as I am if I didn't have this exact body that put me through those experiences. It's made me who I am and I'm, I'm just really grateful for it. Heather Laptalo has four rods in her back that currently fuse 85% of her spine and is classified as 20% disabled. She is missing 40% of her lung capacity. Despite doctors telling her that her athlete days were over, she has hiked to Everest Base Camp at over 18,000 feet, ran multiple marathons, including the Boston Marathon, and went to university on a full-ride cross-country running scholarship. The word can't is simply not in her vocabulary. By the time Heather was 10 years old, she was forced to sleep in a heavy metal brace. It was like a cage she couldn't escape without the help of her parents. She literally couldn't put it on or take it off without help. During the day, though, she ran free as a normal, quote, normal little girl. But by the age of 13, the surgery started because her spine was growing crooked, very crooked. Alienated from her friends for being different, she trudged on through high school with a dream of becoming a professional soccer player. By her senior year, she had another series of surgeries. This time became too much to bear. The doctors told her she would never run and never play soccer again. But refusing to let self-pity and depression define her life, she started walking, then running, then running fast, like five-minute mile fast. Her mantra of, you got this, has pushed her to beat all odds. Now her doctors say she's a miracle. Heather just says, I'm not a miracle. Whatever you believe you are or what you want to be, you can do it. It doesn't matter what physical limitations you think you may have. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this week's episode, and I'm so thankful that Heather came on the podcast. I want to give a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic makes superfood mushroom beverages, and not the psychedelic kind. We're talking adaptogenic mushrooms that can give you an edge. I've been experimenting with a bunch of the different elixirs, and my favorite so far have been the chaga mushroom elixir, and actually a new one is the lion's mane elixir. I actually had a cup of that before the podcast, and it's supposed to help you with focus. And focus is something that all of us struggle with in this world of stimulation, multiple tabs on browsers, phones going off, all the thoughts in our mind. And it was helpful to try that out. Four Sigmatic adds mushroom powders into coffees, into matchas, into hot cocoa, 
and it's super tasty. Even the elixir teas are very tasty, and they're naturally naturally sweetened with stevia and flavored with essential oils. A really cool thing about Four Sigmatic is that if you're curious about mushrooms, and maybe even if you're skeptical about mushrooms, they have a free Mushroom Academy on their website. There's a 100% free online video education on them, and I've done it myself. It was fascinating to learn because in our culture, we don't really use mushrooms for healing. We just eat them like portobello mushrooms or button mushrooms, so it's pretty cool to learn how ancient cultures like in China have used mushrooms as an integral part of their health wisdom. So if you want to give it a try, go to foursigmatic.com. That's F-O-U-R sigmatic.com slash Sonia Looney. Or you can enter my name, Sonia Looney, at checkout to receive a 15% discount. I'd love to hear what your experiences are with these. You can send me a message on social media and just raise education on other ways to take care of ourselves and other ways to increase our energy naturally. If you're enjoying the show and want to share the love, take a screenshot on your phone and just post it on social media and your Instagram stories or on your Facebook and tag myself and Heather Laptolo. We'd love to see what your thoughts are and it helps get the word out on the show. It's really encouraging to see it growing and I always appreciate word of mouth just telling your friends about the show. So let's get into it. Let's hear this amazing story and connect with Heather Laptolo. Heather, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you for having me. It's so fun to Excited actually get to, to get to talk to you after all the articles and all the things that I've been doing to learn about you and then to get to meet you. I feel like I already know you. <laughs> well, I feel like I already know you. I'm a big fan of your podcast and uh, you're an amazing athlete, so you're also fun to follow. Awesome. Thanks so much. I think that our message is a really similar message, although I feel like yours is more credible than mine, like not saying I can't ever in your life. And it's just been really inspiring to learn about your journey. So I can't wait for everybody to hear your story. So yeah, like, why don't you just start us off of you as a little kid and and tell us your story? When I was little, doctors started discovering medical problems left and right, we'll call them mostly with my bones. When I was little, the bones in my feet were growing crooked and was quickly put in braces, kind of like Forrest Gump, but luckily I only had to wear them at night. And then when I was 10, they discovered that my spine was growing crooked. So yet another brace to wear at night. And it was a massive body brace that twisted my spine in the opposite direction it was growing. So I couldn't really walk in it. And it was so big and so cumbersome that I couldn't even get myself into it. My parents actually would open it up for me. I'd crawl in and they'd strap me in and and put me to bed. But during the day, I was a normal kid. I played soccer, I danced, and I did all the things. And it was just after hours when I had to go home and deal with all these things. And I was constantly going to doctors and specialists and getting x-rays was my life. It It was hard. So during the day as a 10 year old girl, you're doing all these different activities. Were you in pain and could people tell that you were having this issue? No, and that's I think what was so hard as a kid to process. I didn't feel like I looked any different. I didn't feel pain, I didn't feel different. And it was funny because the the doctor blamed the way I carried my backpack for my spine growing crooked because it was cool to carry it on one shoulder, all these heavy books. And I remember so, doing that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like no kid puts it on both shoulders. Yeah. And so he 
you know, it was like, if you had ward on both shoulders, your spine would be fine. And I was like, no, kids will notice that there's something wrong with me if I do that. So my method was to wear it on the opposite shoulder because I figured that would straighten me out. It didn't work, of course. But you no, know, I, most of my friends didn't know. There was a one time when I brought my brace to a, a slumber party and that was a big mistake. Kids acted fine at the party, but then school the next day, I was being made fun of and then I was kind of the weird kid. But then, you know, kids have short-term memory. So something else happened to some other kid and I was, that was quickly forgotten about. Yeah. Well, for them, not for you. Like that's something that when, <laughs> when we, when we're made fun of, that just sticks with you the rest of your life. That is true. I definitely had moments where I just felt like a total loner and I didn't fit in. Didn't feel like my friends really knew me. I was just spent a lot of nights crying myself to sleep. <laughs> Yeah. And especially as like moving into adolescence, what that would be like, I can't even imagine because adolescence is hard enough. And then to be dealing with this, it's, it'd be so hard. Ah, oh, super hard. And then I had my first spinal surgery when I was 13 and I had to take a year off from doing all the fun activities with my friends. And so I was going through all this pain from the surgery and relearning how to walk and just relearning how to use my body while all my friends were off having fun and then trying to reintegrate into the friend group and, and who am I and where do I fit in? That was also really hard. Yeah. So what did they do in this surgery? So they took two rods and lined them up on just the thoracics of the top part of my spine. Doctors are able to determine how much more you bones have to grow. And at that, that time in my life, I hadn't hit puberty yet, even though I was 13. And so I had so much more growing to do, but my spine was getting progressively worse, that they were really concerned about my organs and my ability to stand up straight. And they didn't want it to get worse as I actually hit puberty. So they just fused the top part and hoped that that would help straighten out the bottom part. When you fuse your bones, they no longer grow. And so that was part of the challenge of this dance of how much do we actually fuse um, and stop the problem, but not limit her growth. So yeah, they fused the about seven, I think, vertebrae. Wow. Yeah, I can't imagine what the, like, what was the recovery? I mean, you mentioned you had to take a year, was it a year off of school completely? No, I was able to go to school. Um, so I had the surgery just a few days after last day of school, um, last day of my seventh year of school. And so I had the entire summer to basically lounge around and just let my body heal and, and learn how to walk and just kind of start to feel normal. And it was a year from being able to do any sort of sport. So I was able to go back to school and start my eighth grade year on day one. I wasn't allowed to carry anything. So I had to have a book in every classroom ready for me and then a book at home. So I wasn't carrying things back and forth. Uh, so was there anybody that was providing you with emotional support through this time, like your family or like a friend? Friends? I kind of got disconnected from just because I wasn't able to do anything. I did have one friend that would occasionally come over and she even remembers at one point feeding me watermelon because I couldn't actually raise my arm to feed myself. So she was around a bit, but no one really understood what I was going through. And I, my parents really struggled because I can't even imagine what it's like to see your kid in so much pain. They were always around and I try to put on a brave face and, and tell them, no, like I'm not hurting too bad. Yeah. Wow. So whenever you went back to school, what was that like? I mean, did you have more surgeries after that? Were you quote back to like being 
quote normal kid or was it just, did it get worse from there? Um, it actually got worse from there. So the part that they didn't fuse, I had to wear a brace for. And then as I grew, my jaw and my face also started growing crooked. And it became this dance of she needs another surgery for her back, but then also surgery on the jaw. So my senior year of high school, I actually had total reconstructive jaw and chin surgery to fix basically my deformed face. And then my freshman year of college, I had total reconstructive back surgery. They operated twice in one day on my back to fix the lower half of my spine. So going through adolescence, like how did this play into your self-identity and your self-esteem? I didn't know who I was. I had no self-esteem. The self-esteem was so bad that at one point when I was told I had manly legs, growing up a soccer player, you get muscular legs. And I was mortified by it. I was told I didn't look as good in skirts as some of my friends because they were much skinnier. And that led to an eating disorder that I actually almost died from. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I had a really, really tough time in high school of accepting who I was, accepting my body. And part of that also was I felt like I had no control. I had no control of my body. And doctors just kept telling me all the things that was wrong with it. I was often described as deformed by doctors. And then when my face grew really crooked, that was way more noticeable than my back. And so my peers... And school would often make fun of the way I smile just because it was so janky. And so, yeah, the eating disorder just came. It was an easy one for me. I'm like, I can control my weight. I can control how I look in this way. So I stopped eating and I continued to work out like a maniac and lost a bunch of weight, got really unhealthy, and then had to figure out a way to put it on so I could have the surgery. And I just, in that time, I sunk into myself and separated myself from friends and and a lot of people because I just didn't feel comfortable around anyone. It was tough. Yeah. So whenever you're graduating and going to college and you're getting these surgeries, what happened after that? I mean, you, you, I read online, you're missing 40% of your lung capacity and you mentioned that people were calling you deformed. So what transpired from that? Yeah. So in my last surgery, they had to remove half of my right rib cage because it was so deformed. And with the way my spine is curving and missing the bones, one of my lungs doesn't really function. And then with, uh, they took those, those ribs and actually shoved it in where my discs were in my lower spine. Cause they had to remove those and then extend the rods. So now 85% of my spine is fused. Um, my neck moves and just above my tailbone, and that is it. So I'm technically 20%, they say, disabled. I was told after that surgery I would never be able to run and was just given a laundry list of things I would never be able to do, never be able to ski or be in altitude. And I just remember barely being able to hear the doctor. My heart was so broken. I had dreams of being an Olympic soccer player someday. So I can't imagine not running. And I remember telling him like, no, like I'm going to play soccer. And he's, he was just like, nope, you aren't even going to be able to run a mile, let alone play soccer. And I had a really hard time believing it. And I just kept thinking, this isn't going to happen. This isn't possible. But at the same time, I couldn't even raise my arm to brush my hair or bend over to tie my shoes. I was 19 and I was like an infant for my mom. She had to help me literally do everything. Uh, I couldn't take care of myself at all. So 
I remember one day being like, I'm either going to have to just kill myself. And I actually asked nurses if they practiced euthanasia. I begged one of them to uh, put me out of my misery and brought her to tears. So I learned that's not something you ask nurses (laughs) and (laughs) not a good question. And so dying didn't really seem like an option. And I was super curious as to what it's like to be an adult. And I figured when you're an adult, you have control. I, up until 19, I still hadn't had any control over, it felt like anything. So I was really curious as to what that was like. And I think that was what drove me to, no, I have control over my situation. I'm going to take control and I'm going to, I'm going to run. I'm going to figure out how to run. And then once I'm running, I will play soccer again. And I started with just walking. It took probably six months before I was able to walk just a couple miles around the block. And I ended up going to the local YMCA and hopping in a pool and strapping on an aqua jogging belt and belt and working out with the seniors aquatic group. That for me was a bit life-changing because when you're in water, your body doesn't hurt. And I was in so much pain. That's what made it so difficult to walk. So I just relearned how to use my body in the pool. And then I'd get out of the pool and I would try and walk a little bit more, a little bit further. And then about a year after my last surgery, the doctor finally was like, okay, you can try running because every time I saw him, I would beg, can I run yet? Can I run yet? He's like, you can try, but it's not going to happen. And so I tried, I went to the track and I made it about a hundred meters. I ran just down the straightaway and then I just hit the wall. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't go any further. My body feels so heavy. And I started getting really down on myself. And then I heard this like faint voice in my head of, you've got this. And I was like, okay, yeah, I got this. I can just walk the turns and run the straightaway. And I did that over and over again. And I kept going back to the track each day, running a little bit further and walking a little bit less each day until one day I was just just able to run three miles without stopping. Wow. Like that's such a great story of tenacity because you were in a place where you wanted to die and then you were able to pull yourself out of being a victim of your own circumstance and say, no, like I'm doing this, which is really amazing because most people, regardless of how severe their situation is in their life, like most people play the victim role in their life and it's really hard to do that. So that's amazing. Yeah, I think I had done the victim role once before with the eating disorder and I just, I knew I couldn't go back there and do it again. Something had to be different this time. Yeah. So like you said, you're able to get up to three miles. So was it mental? Was it learning how to deal with the pain while running? Was it like getting strong in different ways? Like what enabled you to continue going farther and farther? I think a variety of things. I think once I realized I was able to run a little bit, I kept wondering, well, how much further can I go? And a lot of relearning how to run was one, I was in a lot of pain and two, my body was moving differently. My, without my spine moving, the way my arms moved, the way my legs tracked, it all just felt so different. And having taken a little over a year off from, from doing much physically, I had lost all my muscle. And so I was really weak. And then my lungs, just having to regain as much strength as I possibly could, they had collapsed my lung to do the surgery. And so just rebuilding up that strength to be able to use it. And it just became this huge mental battle of like, no, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to run and I'm going to then play soccer. That is what I'm going to do. I love that. So cool. So I saw that you were running on the track and then there was somebody that was watching you. Yes. 
you know, there's a lot of regulars that go to tracks and I noticed this man, he was there every day. And then one day he was waving his arms, trying to get my attention. And he was asking me, you know, who do you run for? And I didn't like to be bothered when I was running. I didn't want to stop. It was when I ran is when I probably felt the least amount of pain. And I just felt free. I was just in my own like meditative state. So don't stop me. And so I just hollered back and I was like, myself. And then he was like, how old are you? And I'm like, man, this guy is kind of creepy. And I just kept going and then came around again. And he's like in the middle of the track, waving his arms. I'm the San Jose State Cross Country Coach. Please talk to me. <laughs> I was like, what? University coach? That's crazy. I had never raced before. I didn't really know what exactly cross country was but ended up with a full ride scholarship. He had a stopwatch, which I didn't realize he was actually clocking my time. And I had never worn a watch. So I have no idea how fast I was going, but apparently I was going pretty quick. So soccer, soccer didn't happen, but running did. Wow. And like, were you already in college at this point? I was, I had gone to a local junior college one that was really close to my parents so I could stay with them and they could help take care of me and I could take time off of school and it not be an issue. So yeah, I was trying to figure out what university I was going to go to after this junior college and turns out it was San Jose State. Wow. That's, that gives me goosebumps because it's like you chose to do something out of sheer determination on your own when everybody else was telling you that you can't do it. And by doing that, it opened the door to something else that you didn't think would happen. And it's just amazing the things that happen in our lives and the trajectories that we get set on whenever mm -hmm. we actually do what we want. We do the right things that are for us and not for anybody else. It's so cool. So true. I never saw that door opening. I never saw myself as a runner. I actually thought runners were crazy. And why would you run if there wasn't a ball or something chasing you? <laughs> <laughs> but I absolutely fell in love with the sport and I am a crazy obsessed runner still. Yeah. And it sounds like running is that thing that gave you back the control. And it was also the path to self-acceptance too. Definitely. Definitely. I feel more like myself when I'm running. And I think that's partly why I love it so much. And I, I can go places that people can't go unless they're on their feet. So it's pretty amazing. So with all the running and going to race cross country, what is your relationship with pain like? Because you mentioned that growing up you were in pain and then getting back into sports and running was also painful. Like, do you still experience pain from all of your surgeries? I do have chronic back pain. I think I'm still so passionate about running because that's when I don't feel the chronic back pain. It disappears. And I think part of the reason why I'm such a great athlete is because I deal so well with pain. I really enjoy making my legs hurt because then when I'm done running, I don't notice my back hurting because my legs are throbbing <laughs> and I can push through so much more pain because my pain tolerance is incredibly high after having several back surgeries. So what advice would you give people who are either dealing with chronic pain or they're just trying to learn how to manage pain in their exercise? For me, it's 
convincing yourself you're not in pain. Um, and that would be my advice that I would give anyone is talk to yourself. When I started running, I just kept telling myself, you've got this. And anytime, even today, when things get hard and I'm outside using my body or even inside and it's like some mental challenge or emotional challenge, I remind myself, you've got this. And I constantly talk to myself and tell myself I'm strong, kind of gets cheesy, the dialogue that goes in my, my head you know, often negative voices come in that says, you're not strong enough, you're too weak, you're not this, you're not that. And then I just, I tell them to shut up. And I tell myself, nope, I am strong. I've got this, I can do it. And if someone's having a hard time finding that voice, I always tell them, what would you tell your best friend? Like if your best friend came to you and said, like, I really want to run a 5k, I've never run even a half mile. So how am I going to get to this 5k? I don't think I can do it. You would tell them, no, you can do it. You can totally do it. Take small steps and you would be their cheerleader. So whatever you would say to your friend, say to yourself and be your own personal cheerleader. And you can talk yourself out of the pain and remind yourself, know that life is great. Life is good and and you're capable. So did you go back to that doctor and be like, you were wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I have. And it's funny because a lung specialist also examined my lungs and he was like, yep, your lungs are the equivalent of a two pack a day, 80 year old smoker. You're not running. (laughs) And then I went back a year later and I was able at that point to run a five minute mile. I had (laughs) completed, I completed a marathon. So successful. And went back to him and he tested them again. He's like, yep, they're still really bad. And I then I told him, I was like, well, this is what I've accomplished. He's like, I don't believe you. I was like, do you want me to show you? Like, do you want to go for a run? Do you want to see some records? And he was just, he's like, I have no idea what to tell you. And then I went back to my surgeon. And I told him the same thing. I'm like, I'm running. He's like, you're a miracle. Like, no, I'm not a miracle. I guarantee you I'm not a miracle. But that's what doctors tell me. I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And so... I'm just this anomaly, this miracle. Yeah. And it's interesting, like the limitations that other people set on us, whether it be doctors, whether it be our parents or whether it be ourselves of like what we're capable of. And in your case, a lot of people would be afraid to even try because a doctor who has authority says, don't do this. Mm -hmm. But they don't necessarily have all the answers either. And a lot of people assign medical doctors this like they know everything and you have to listen to everything that they say. But that's not the case, because if you had listened to everything that they said, like your life would be completely different. Oh, my gosh, I can't even imagine how different my life would be if I did listen. And you're right. My entire family, friends, they all listened, And part of them listening was just fear. They saw me go through enough pain and trauma that they didn't want me to try running and then get more hurt. So they were just terrified. And so no one wanted me to run. But that voice inside is like, nope, you can do it. You've got this. And I'm not a miracle. It's just my brain and my like soul just knew I was meant to be a runner. And you, whatever you believe you are, what you want to be, you can actually you can do it. It doesn't matter whatever physical limitations you think you may have. Yeah. And like with fear, I think that fear, people are afraid, oh, like something bad's going to happen or I'm going to get hurt or I'm going to have to get more surgery. But the fear of the other thing, they don't think about that. Like, oh, what about the fear of not actually living a life that was intended for you that you could be or like living your life 
to your potential? Like, what about that fear? And what about trying that? That's definitely the fear that I think drives me. I always question like when I'm faced with two things, okay, yeah, here's all the horrible things that can happen, but what are the best things that can happen? And what's worse, not having those best things happen or having the really bad things happen. And it's always the fear of those amazing things. If I miss out on those, that's more terrifying. So what made you decide to do a marathon? (laughs) I was working at a running store and most of the people that we serviced were marathon runners. And a customer one day told me I wasn't a real runner. I was just a sprinter and capable of running 26.2 miles. And I was pretty cocky at that point in time because I was told I can never run. And here I am running on a full ride scholarship. And so I even told my bosses, I was like, I could run a marathon. I could run slow forever. That sounds really easy. And my boss was like, you think so? here's an entry. Um, two weeks later, something crazy like that. I was towing the line of a marathon. Two eight miles later. was <laughs> eight miles was my longest run before that. So the idea of even going over 10 was a pretty big deal. And it was really painful. I definitely hit the wall a few times and thought I wouldn't make it. But that voice kept saying, Nope, you've got this. And I crossed the finish line and then I qualified for Boston. And that, so I was like, okay. that marathon, the first one. <laughs> yep. Wow. So I was like, I got to do Boston. And then it just became this addiction of, well, how far can I actually go? Cause I'm pretty sure I can go farther than that. And so now the longest I've gone is about 50 miles. Maybe one day I'll make it to Western States and do a hundred. So inching my way up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting relationship that we have with how far we can push ourselves because the problem is once you've started pushing yourself kind of far, you just want more and more. And then that line gets so far that you're like, should I even be doing this? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is very true. And I've added to the list of things. I'm not just a runner anymore. I was grew up in California, went to school there, started my career there. But then I landed a job in Portland, Oregon. And when I moved up here, I was mesmerized by all the mountains. And all I could think was, man, what would it be like to stand on one of those? Oh, man, the doctor said, you know, my body couldn't handle altitude with my lungs. But they were wrong about my ability to run. So maybe they're wrong about mountains. And so (laughs) I decided to climb a mountain, climbed St. Helens, which is an 8,000 foot volcano. And I remember being terrified of like every step I took, I was like, it's really hard to breathe. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And I just kept telling myself, you've got this. And then I did, I made it to the top. And then it just became this obsession of, okay, how much higher can I go? How, like, where can I get to? And I started climbing 14ers. And then that led me to going to Nepal and going to Everest base camp and climbing to 18,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so now I'm like, okay, can I make it to 20? So trying to like plot a next trip, next mountain, see how much higher I can go. Wow. I mean, I've actually been to Nepal and raced my bike over an 18,000 foot pass and with full lung capacity, like (laughs) I know how hard that is. So I can't even imagine what it would be like to do it like that. I mean, it's so cool. I can't even imagine doing it on a bike. I didn't have equipment to carry. You just have, yeah, you just walk your bike, which is kind of lame, but (laughs) yeah. 
So I'm going to get really geeky for a second about physiology. So if you're not getting the amount of oxygen in your running or hiking that you would otherwise, have you done like blood work to see if you have like a really crazy red blood cell count or something to help you with that? No, but that's a really good idea. For me, when I breathe, it's just so much different than the average person. I breathe really short, shallow breaths Mm -hmm. versus like a long, deep breath. Yoga is actually one of the hardest things for me. The way you're supposed to breathe in yoga and they tell you breathe in for a count of four. I'm like, I can maybe make it two. And when I try and take a deep breath, I feel my lung just like stop and collapse. So I don't know if I'm necessarily getting less air or if I'm just breathing a lot really fast in order to compensate for the lack of expansion. Yeah. Cause like with hypoxia, people do go to hypoxic chambers or like I used to live in Colorado. So like my hematocrit was much higher than it is now when I live at sea level. So like you might have just like freakishly high hematocrit <laughs> because you've always been in a state of hypoxia. Uh, this is true. When I was in Nepal with the group, we, we did the what is it where you put the thing on your finger that tests your heart rate and your oxygen level? Yeah. <laughs> Don't know what that's called. But I actually had the second lowest heart rate and the second highest oxygen level. And I was second to the guide that was with us. Wow. That's amazing. He, <laughs> I don't know how I did it, but yeah, it's like maybe it is in the, the blood cells. Yeah. There's a lot of geeky, like I could get really geeky because I love all this stuff. Um, (laughs) yeah. Another, another fun thing you could do is you can actually test the blood oxygen level in an exercising muscle. There's like tons of different sensors out there that do that. So you could actually go out for a run and you could have it reading what that percentage of oxygen saturation is in your muscles. You might be like crazy efficient in your muscles, like way more than anybody because of how you Uh had to do like, yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) <laughs> that sounds amazing. Now I really want to do that. <laughs> I have a ma- like I'm a total math nerd, so I also geek out on that sort of thing. Nice. Me too. Math nerds unite. <laughs> <laughs> One of my other podcast guests, uh, Larissa Connor, she's a math teacher, and I told her I was jealous that she was a math teacher. <laughs> I taught math for a year. So awesome. <laughs> So I want to talk about confidence because whenever you said about the marathon, like that you were cocky and you decided like, no, I've done all these other things. Like I can do this too. Where do you think confidence like that comes from? Cause I, I don't actually think that's cockiness. I think it's confidence. I think that's a great question. I think it comes from just the deep desire to do these things. I believe it's who I'm meant to be. So therefore the confidence is just there because it's who I am versus when I'm trying to do something that isn't me and I'm trying to fill someone else's shoes or do something to make someone else happy, I have no confidence. But because I feel like I'm a runner, I'm meant to be doing this. I think it's there. That's really cool. And it's like a really deep intuition that's that's hard to get. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I also think that confidence comes from just overcoming these small hurdles one at a time. And then it just kind of builds over time. Once you do this, you're like, well, now what can I do? Well, I I was able to do X, Y, Z. So now I can do this. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes when I get bogged down and I'm hard on myself, I just think back to like all the things that I've accomplished and I go, man, I'm kind of a badass. Yeah. Yeah. I can go do this thing. And I think it's sometimes hard to remember and celebrate all the things that we've already accomplished in life. 
because we're so much pushing forward. And if we just take a step back and look at all the things we've done, it's like, no, everyone's a badass. Okay, we've all overcome and done so much in our lives. So have you gone um, or considered going to talk to like high schools about like what you went through in high school and how you got through it? I would actually really love to do that. When I was a teacher, I shared a bit of it. But currently, no, I, I'm not in that space. And I'm but I would love to. Yeah, I think that would be really cool. Yeah. I also read something in one of the articles you read. It's a quote and I want to read it and then I want you to talk about it. It's about women in particular. So you said women especially are constantly given the message of you can't do something for X, Y, Z reasons because we're too weak. (laughs) That's hard for me to even say that you're too weak because it just makes me so angry. What an inspiration you are for other women too, like that you can go and do all of these things. Yeah, I think it's amazing what women are capable of if they are just given the message they can do something. Talking with friends and coworkers, females, it's we've all been given this message of we're not strong enough. We're not as strong as men, so we're not capable. Like, okay, maybe we can't do exactly what they're doing, but we can do something else, and maybe we can do it in our own way that's even better than the way they're doing it. So I'm now super inspired to help women see that we're just as capable as men. We can do whatever we want. We're as strong as we want to be. It's all in our mindset. So, yeah. How has the power of gratitude played a role in your life and in your motivation? It's played a huge role. I am so grateful to have my body and Anytime I'm out on a run or I'm climbing a mountain or I'm skiing, doing something outside, I always pause and I just think, man, I am so lucky. I'm so lucky to have this body. I'm so lucky to have the strength because I get to see this. I get to be this here and I get to feel it. I get to feel it in my body because I'm using my body in this space. And I'm actually really grateful I've had these surgeries, which is a, a weird thing to say considering it was such a hard experience. But I don't think I'd be who I am if I didn't. Sometimes I think, well, I could probably be a faster runner if I had full lung capacity and I'd be even better if my spine moved. But the truth is I wouldn't be as strong and resilient as I am if I didn't have this exact body that put me through those experiences. It's made me who I am and I'm I'm just really grateful for it. Yeah, that's such a good point about resiliency. Number one, it's mindset because you're able to look at it and say, no, like I'm better because of this. And Mm -hmm. I've heard that before from people who've gone through challenges in their lives. And I think that that's a really awesome place to be in your mind. And I think that it's helpful for other people to take that and look at their lives and see, okay, what have been my biggest challenges and how am I better because of those challenges? And who would I be without those challenges? I think that's the most fascinating one to look at is like, who would you be without this? And I think the answer is always someone not as cool. (laughs) (laughs) So like, who do you look up to and who, who inspires you right now in your journey? Honestly, it's kind of cheesy, but I still get inspired by the 20 year old version of me. She, I think was so amazing. The fact that she had doctors and family saying no to running and trying all these things. And at 20, all my friends had gone away to school and I stayed home and was in my parents' house and they were taking care of me. I literally couldn't do anything. I 
could not brush my hair. I could not put my shoes on. I needed help sitting up and just help getting to the bathroom for an extended period of time. But that didn't stop that 20 year old version of me of believing in herself. Like, I don't know how sometimes I, I didn't believe that I could run. But when I look back, I'm like, holy crap, like it was a long journey. And that 20 year old version of me is just phenomenal for pushing through it, for calming out all those voices that said, no, you can't. And just pushing through and, and believing in herself. Yeah, it reminds me of this quote, like one of my favorite books is The Fountainhead by Anne Rand. And I reread it recently. And the main character, Howard Work, he says, the question isn't who's going to let me. The question is who's going to stop me. And that kind of reminds me of what you did. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not letting someone stop you is it's hard to do. But I feel like once you kind of like cross that line of breaking into doing what you want to do and ignoring what everyone else is saying, it just it's so infectious and you just can't stop. So what do you have going on right now? Like, it's always hard when you've just done all these amazing things and then someone asks you what's next because you're like, I just did all this stuff. Like, what if I don't have anything that's next? Like, it's okay not to have something that's next, but. Oh, I always have something next. I recently learned how to ski. That was another thing I was told I would never be able to do. And so I've gotten into ski mountaineering. So I'm trying to figure out how to get better at that and plan trips around that. As far as running, I'm racing in hood to coast in two weeks. And then as soon as I'm done with that, I'm going to Norway and doing some running in Norway. So those are the next immediate big things that I'm focused on. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome to me. (laughs) Yep, I'm pretty excited about it. And you just got back from a trip. How was Europe? It was good. Yeah, I was in Poland for a race. The race was really hard. And today I was on a ride, actually, because the race was like 6,000 feet of climbing every day. And I honestly wasn't really in shape for that kind of climbing. I still won the race and it went well and everything. But like, I just didn't train like I needed to be training for that. So it just felt so incredibly hard. So like, I came home and now I'm riding all the steep pitches on the trails and they (laughs) actually don't feel that bad. I'm like, Oh, that was great training. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how do you push through when you're in a race when you don't feel prepared for it? I tell myself that it's not, nothing's permanent. Like whenever it really hurts or whenever it's super hard, I just say, this isn't going to last forever. So just do my best for right now. And then this pain and this suffering is going to become a memory and it's going to become a memory that wasn't nearly as bad as as it seems right now. So I guess that's called type two fun. (laughs) (laughs) Type two fun is definitely still fun. It is. So what kind of habits do you have at home to take care of your body? Because I imagine that you get tightened in different places and have to deal with your chronic pain. So like, what are some things that you do at home? Yeah. So I see a physical therapist still once a week. Part of that is because my ligaments are really loose because they compensate for what my spine won't do. So they'll move and move too much. And sometimes, well, I used to fracture bones because my ligaments ligaments weren't supporting them. So now I see a physical therapist that keeps an eye on the ligaments and makes sure they're okay. And then I also see a massage therapist once a month or once a week because I do get tight in a lot of spaces. I do a lot of yoga these days to help also stretch and give myself more mobility. Have you ever heard of PRP? Mm Mm-mm plasma-rich platelet therapy. That's something for you to geek out on. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
it's where they take your blood and then they spin it and pull out just the platelets. And then they'll inject the platelets into my ligaments when they get too weak and stretched out and doctors will put them, my joints back in place, but the ligaments just won't hold them because they're too weak. They'll then inject them with the blood platelets and it just tightens them right back up. Or if I tear a ligament, inject it and it's, it heals. That's awesome. So it's a process to keep this body working. And I have a lot of physical therapy exercises that I do several times a week. So it's, it's a lot of maintenance. Yeah. So what does your family think of all this stuff now? Because like you mentioned when you were 20, they're saying, oh, we're afraid for you. Like, don't do this. And now you keep pushing the envelope. Uh, they still, my mom in particular, she's, she's amazing, but she's also a huge worrywart and is constantly worrying that I'm going to get hurt and I remind her it's going to be okay. And half the time I don't tell her what I'm doing until after I'm done doing it. And I can show her a pretty photo of like, look how amazing this was. They're not very athletic. So they also don't understand my desire to keep pushing myself. I'm just this black sheep that's trying to get out and just kill my body every day. (laughs) And what would you tell people whenever they say, I can't do something like, You always hear people say, I can't. And I mean, I've said I can't myself about things. And like, sometimes you actually can't do it. Like if I want to go out and fly, I can't. (laughs) So how how can people figure out the limitations they're putting on themselves if they're actually true limitations or if they are self-imposed, fear-based limitations? I would say most limitations are self-imposed, fear-based And yes, like I will never be able to do gymnastics. I cannot bend my back. There are rods. That'll never happen. And I think it's just separating the for sure will never happen because of I can't fly. I don't have wings versus the, well, why? Your knees hurt? Okay, that's not a very good excuse to not do something. You know, have someone work on your knees, figure it out. Or maybe it's your knees hurt because you don't have enough strength in your legs to support your knees. And to get over that hurdle of telling yourself, I can't, it's just switching it to say, I can. And when you hear the voice in your head saying, I can't, just tell it to shut up and say, I can. And that's all the mantra I had in my head. I just kept saying, I can, I can do this. You've got this. I think the voice that you hear in your head is what you become and what you believe. There's so much power to the brain. It's really amazing. And that's where it goes back to, if you can't, tell it to yourself. Think about what you would tell a friend. You would tell a friend they could do it. So talk to yourself like you're talking to a friend and look in a mirror and tell yourself out loud. Maybe that works better, but it's just hearing that voice of you can do it. I think you'll be able to do it. I love that. That's so powerful and a really great reminder for everybody. So I have one more question for you and it's about the technology of the surgeries you had. Are they still doing it the same way? No, they're not. I've heard they've been experimenting with just making small slits in the back and putting a piece at the top of the curve and a piece at the bottom and then a piece of metal to straighten it out. And that metal is more uh, movable versus a solid piece. Mine, they cut the ent- all the way down the back. So my entire spine has a scar. And they also took my bone marrow and made a paste and put it on my bone, my vertebrae. So now I only have one bone. So if they were to remove the rods, my spine would still be immobile because they're 
there's no vertebrae anymore and they're not doing that anymore, which is also interesting. And apparently they did that back in the day because spines that were growing as aggressively as mine would snap rods because the bone is so much stronger than the rod. And so they had to fuse the bone together and make it one bone. So that way the spine wouldn't actually snap the rods. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, Is there anything else that you want to share before we uh, head out? No, I I think this has been a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming to the show. Where's a good spot for people to find you if they want to find out more? Um, They can follow my adventures at hloptalo on Instagram. And then they can also go to my website. I do do some speaking. So they can find me there at www.heatherloptalo.com. Awesome. We'll put all all that in the show notes. And you guys should definitely check out our website. It's a beautiful website and there's a lot of good information on there. Uh, Thank you. Thanks so much. It was so fun to meet you and hopefully we can meet in person and go for a run sometime. Oh, that would be great. That was so awesome. And I encourage you guys to connect with Heather. Her website, heatherloptalo.com is beautiful. And there's a lot of great information on there and go to her Instagram. All of that is linked up in the show notes. I wanted to give a special thank you to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. It's a crowdfunding website. So basically all you have to do is donate a couple bucks per month even a couple bucks makes a difference and it helps the growth of the show. So thank you so much to those of you who have been doing that. If you made it this far in the episode, I'm going to give you a sneak peek at what the next Moxie and Grit sock is. I haven't announced it anywhere else and it's going to be a few weeks before it's ready, but it is an avocado sock titled The Time is Ripe. So make sure you follow Moxie and Grit on Instagram. That's M-O-X-Y. A-N-D-G-R-I-T, Moxie and Grit, and you'll see whenever it is available. I think it's going to be really popular and it's really fun. So thank you so much for those of you who have been rocking the socks. And before you head out, I just wanted to tell you again about Four Sigmatic, our podcast sponsor, the company that makes the best superfood mushroom blends you can possibly ask for. And I had mentioned earlier the Lion's Mane Elixir. They say go limitless with Lion's Mane, and it helps with focus. It helps with energy, and it's so funny that it's called lion's mane, that a mushroom is called lion's mane, but it is, and these adaptogenic mushrooms are amazing. They make a difference, and even my naturopath had talked about adaptogens to me, and he recommends cordyceps mushrooms, which also is sold by Four Sigmatic, so if you want to try it out, maybe you want to see if you get an extra edge or you feel a little bit of extra energy in your body from it, go to foursigmatic.com, F-O-U-R sigmatic.com slash Sonia Looney or enter my name, Sonia Looney, at checkout to get a 15% off coupon to give it a try. I sincerely appreciate you guys being here. Thank you so much for listening. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures, and we'll see you next week.